This audio teaching is provided by Segula.net. You're listening to Session 20, Revival, Part A, from the series, Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. This session was recorded live at Beit Sur Fellowship. So the last several sessions we've looked at, uh, well, in all of Part 4, really, talking about these different aspects of the Holy Spirit, who is the Holy Spirit, what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, to uh, be following the Spirit and not the letter, to be walking in the power of the Spirit and understanding spiritual warfare. And um, this session, uh, session 20 on revival, is kind of kind of a climax of all this that we've been talking about so far. And this is probably, for me personally, the most exciting topic in this series. You know, we've talked a lot about God's Spirit working in us as individuals, um, a lot about, you know, the different gifts of the Spirit and things like that. Uh, And also, sometimes we've talked about, you know, trying to clarify misunderstandings or uh, ways that perhaps this biblical teachings about the Holy Spirit are misunderstood or mispresented. And so what I want to talk about today is more um, the positive, corporate, large-scale kind of work of the Holy Spirit. Um, So we've talked about this in other sessions, how the Holy Spirit is like the life force of the Kehillah, of the body of Messiah. You know, just like your body without your spirit is dead, the body of Messiah without the spirit of Messiah is dead. The Holy Spirit is our life force. And that's true, uh, not just in a spiritual individual sense, but it's true in a corporate sense, that if it, without the Holy Spirit in our midst as a body of believers— we don't have that life. That's that's what gives us life as believers. So, in this uh, topic of revival, uh, we're going to first look at what do we mean by this term? How do we define revival? And then we're going to look at some historical examples of revivals that have taken place. And that's about as far as we'll get tonight. And then next time we'll look at what it means to be seeking revival and what does the Bible say about the future uh, in regards to revival. So let's talk about this, defining revival. What is revival? What does that look like? Uh, Basically, I'm going to use the term revival to refer to a move of God's Spirit uh, or a a large-scale movement of repentance. And that's not the way that everyone uses the term revival. So uh, sometimes you hear, um, you know, revival as uh, emotionally charged meeting, religious meeting, or you know, a tent revival or an evangelistic meeting. Uh, Sometimes people talk about, we're going to have a revival meeting and things like that. And that's a little different than the way I'm using it here in this session. So, you know, an emotional reaction. We've talked about how emotions are not bad, but in and of themselves are not evidence for or against the Holy Spirit, right? Um, You can have strong emotions because of multiple reasons. Uh, The Holy Spirit certainly may evoke strong emotions in us, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, But uh, true revival is bigger than just emotions, right? A real revival is a move of God's Spirit where lives are changed. People are brought to Messiah in numbers that far exceed normal growth. It's where God's Spirit so works in people's hearts in preparing the ground and preparing the seed in accompanying messages, message, messages where it's easy to lead someone to the Lord. When revival is not happening, uh, it's a struggle. 
you feel like, you know, if you're doing outreach ministry or things like that, you work a lot and you see little results. When there's a revival, it's like God is the one doing the work and you're just sitting back watching. <laughs> you're just trying to hold on for the ride. So there are, there are times throughout history when it seems as though God's spirit has been more imminent than at other times. And that's not something that I completely understand. Why, why is it that, as, as believers, in, in, I mean, in theory, the Holy Spirit should be just as available at any moment, at any, any day, any time, right? But it seems like throughout history, we see these patterns of seasons where, for whatever reason, God's Spirit is more active, is more keenly felt, is more imminent, where there's more tangible results that you see, changed lives, people coming to Yeshua in large numbers. And all I can say is that this is part of the mystery of the way God chooses to work, and we don't always completely understand that. We, we have the Holy Spirit as believers. We have access to the Holy Spirit, right? But revival is a time when the Holy Spirit is, is given in a greater measure than normal, it, at least it seems. And I, I think Acts chapter 2, and, and really the whole book of Acts, is probably the quintessential example of revival, Right? There are seasons where it seems like God's Spirit is working in more concrete terms. Okay, so first of all, the term revival as we're using it is not found in Scripture. It's a term we use to try and define a phenomenon, but I'm going to suggest that this... uh, Revivals are found in scripture. They just don't use that word to describe it, right? So uh, other terms that might be equivalent would be uh, uh, mass repentance, right? Or an outpouring of God's spirit or um, uh, reform, maybe. You might use that term. So here's my definition for revival. A God-empowered, widespread move of repentance. I want to unpack that a little bit. True revival is God-empowered. You can't mimic it. You can't uh, conjure it up. It's not something, you don't say, let's plan a revival, right? It's not something you do. It's something God does. It's a God-empowered Uh, widespread, right? Just like coronavirus, if only two people in the world have it, it's not a pandemic. (laughs) Uh, It has to be more than just a few people for it to be a revival. Uh, It's if if one or two people have an amazing experience or a transformation or something like that, that's not a revival. It's when something happens that's widespread. Uh, and a move of repentance. And this is something that I think is sometimes overlooked by people when they use the term revival, is the importance of repentance. Because, uh, and we have to define repentance here, right? Repentance is a turning toward God that results in a change in behavior. It's life-changing, right? It changes the way you live. It changes the way you act. changes who you are. So true revival is measured by changed lives, right? True revival is not measured by uh, any specific experience or set of experiences. It's measured by lives that are changed. At the same time, um, revival also affects people who are already believers, right? Even the the term revive, right, means to, to give something life again or to bring something back to life, give something more life, right? So as a body of believers, we need repeated encounters with God, with his spirit. We need uh, to repeatedly experience him anew. Uh, 
It's not enough to have an experience way back when and think I'm good to go. And we learned that from the tragic story of Saul, King Saul, when he, he had these incredible encounters with God's spirit where, you know, the people are like, is Saul also among the prophets, right? What's going on with this guy? And then that didn't help him when he went off into sin and eventually the Holy Spirit left him, right? We're leaky vessels. <laughs> we can be filled with the Spirit, but we can't rely on that to sustain us forever, right? We need repeated fillings and empowerings. And revival is kind of like a large, wide, widespread corporate infilling that takes place. Uh, so re believers are revitalized in their faith as well during a revival. Uh, here is what a revival is not, just to clarify. A revival is not an emotional reaction to a sermon or worship service. A revival is not a lively church meeting. A revival is not an instance of supernatural manifestations or signs and wonders. A revival is not a personal spiritual renewal. A revival is not an evangelistic crusade. Now, a revival could involve some or all of these things, but no one of these things defines revival, right? Revival is bigger than that. I want to quote at length uh, a description by Wesley Duell uh, about revival. He says, Revival days are not normal days in the life of the church. They are supernormal, supernatural. They are the great days of the church when God manifests his presence in overwhelming reality. They leave you with a profound realization of God's greatness and transcendence and of your own unworthiness and dependence on him. God's presence and power are so mightily and extensively at work during revival that God accomplishes more in hours or days that then usually results from years of faithful non-revival ministry. Revival usually involves some preaching and evangelism, but revival is far more than evangelism. Man can evangelize, only God can give revival. During revival, people are moved toward Messiah, people who, who can be moved in no other way. Many prayers that have gone unanswered for years are gloriously answered. Often the very atmosphere seems awesomely filled with God's power, Christians recognize it as the holy presence of God. Sinners feel a fearsome awareness of God's presence and their own sinfulness. God may reveal his presence in unexpected ways. Accompanying his deep work in the soul may be other surprising occurrences. There may be such a sense of God's presence and power that some people tremble. Some may be moved to weeping before God. Some at times sink to the ground in physical helplessness. Others may feel almost irresistibly drawn to attend revival services or to convene at a place and time when no service has been announced. Man-made enthusiasm and emotionalism is superficial and cheap. In real revival, emotion is not produced or manipulated by man. It is a response to the unsought, unexpected, but powerful working of God's Spirit upon the inner depths of people's souls. Revival converts tend to be lasting converts. Again and again it has been noted that the people who have been profoundly convicted of their sin in a time of revival remain faithful over the years after their conversion. They have a permanent reverential awe of God and an abiding love for Christ. They have a deeper understanding and appreciation of the grace of God. So there's a bunch of things that I think are significant that he brings out, right? It's uh, revival is not the ordinary experience that we experience all the time, right? It's extraordinary. It's, and it's something where God is working in such a way that it makes the mission he's called us to do easy, right? So often it seems like the, the commission to go out and make disciples of all nations is really difficult. Revival is a time where that happens easily. Also, 
in revival, uh, people who come to Yeshua during revival tend to stay believers. This is not just a fad where people make a commitment, but then there's no follow-up and, and people fall away right away, right? So this is not just an evangelistic crusade where, you know, you get people to sign a card saying, yeah, I'm, I, be, I have accepted Yeshua into my heart today, but then they go back and live their regular lives. So these are these are things that I think are are critical to uh, defining what revival is and defining what's a legitimate example of revival in history. So keeping in mind our uh, definition of revival, a God-empowered widespread move of repentance, uh, there's lots of different examples of revivals in scripture and throughout history. And uh, this is... Um, a very, very selective list. Uh, yeah, we're going to look at a couple of these examples, um, both uh, first from the Bible and then a couple different examples from history. So first of all, uh, that is backwards. Hezekiah's reform should be first. <laughs> Hezekiah came before Josiah. Apparently my PowerPoint doesn't know that. So in 2 Kings chapter 18, we read this incredible description of Hezekiah. Uh, talks about how Hezekiah, he, he became king at a very critical time in Israel's history, right? And actually during his reign, the northern kingdom went into exile and ceased to be an independent kingdom. So the description of Hezekiah here in 2 Kings 18 is remarkable starting in verse 3 he did what was right in the eyes of the lord according to all that david his father had done i mean david wasn't his immediate father but his ancestor right uh, the king who was his father just before him was ahaz um, and ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the lord so hezekiah broke with his father's ways and went back to his ancestor David, and the way and and uh, what David had done, following David's example, he removed the high places. He broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it, and it was called Nehushtan. That's quite remarkable. Since the time of Moses, this bronze snake had been around, and they had been they had idolized it. And so he actually destroyed it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. That's an incredible description. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Uh, wherever he went out, he prospered. So Hezekiah initiates this reform in Judah. Uh, he starts getting rid of all these idols and uh, the high places, all these places of worship that uh, they were using for pagan worship, and he reestablishes the temple in Jerusalem as the place of worship. And the incredible thing happened in Hezekiah's reign of Assyria coming to invade the land, because at that time Assyria was this empire war machine that decimated everything in its path, right? All these little kingdoms toppled one after another, including the northern kingdom of Israel. And Judah and Jerusalem was the only exception to that. And that was obviously God's miraculous hand. Uh, but I think that Hezekiah's uh, reform, Hezekiah's repentance program, had a role to play in that, in preventing Judah from being decimated along with the rest of the then known world to Assyria. Okay, uh, and Josiah. Josiah is another really cool guy. <laughs> so Josiah becomes king right after 
uh, right after Manasseh. So Manasseh was, uh, went down in history as the most wicked king of Judah. And his son Josiah comes to the throne, and he's, he's young. He's only, what was it, uh, eight years old? Yeah, 2 Kings 22. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And so then there's the story of when Josiah starts the, uh, to rebuild the temple, repairing the temple, uh, and the high priest, Hilkiah, finds the scroll of the Torah in the temple, which had been neglected for all these years. And so they rediscover the scroll, and, and they bring it to the king, and they read it to him. And his response is he tears his robes because he realized we haven't been following this. And we're, we're setting ourselves up for disaster because we're not following this, right? And so then he initiates this, this big repentance program, this huge reformation. And I'm not going to read all of it, but he... Uh, Des- destroys all these idolatrous places of worship. He uh, he actually makes a covenant with the people to uh, to follow Torah, to follow uh, the God of Israel, and they keep the Passover again. And it says, uh, "No such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah." So it's a little uh, ambiguous there. Does that mean that they didn't keep the Passover at all during those days? Like, what about David? Did David never keep the Passover? Uh, it's, what it probably means is that it was never kept on this large of a scale, right? This was like the, the biggest Passover that had ever happened since the days of the judges. And in 2 Kings 23, 24, Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the Torah of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. That would be incredible to have that said of you, eh? So there's this huge repentance that takes place in Judah, and uh, I think this qualifies as a revival, right? Okay, I mentioned already the book of Acts, that the book of Acts is basically a account of a huge revival and a very pivotal and significant one in history, right? And there's a a sense in which, and we've talked about this already when we were looking at Acts 2, there's a sense in which I think every revival since then has been after the pattern of Acts 2, in the sense that you look at what Acts 2 was, and it was commissioning and empowering Yeshua's disciples and Yeshua's followers to fulfill the Great Commission, to go out and proclaim the, uh, the gospel to all nations, to make disciples of all nations. And so the speaking in all these foreign languages supernaturally was a sign of that empowerment, right? It's a sign of God's word going forth to the ends of the earth. It's Isaiah chapter 2, or is it chapter 2? Yeah, I think it's chapter 2. Uh, for the Torah will shall go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, right? And all the nations are streaming to hear God's word. And, and that's what this is symbolizing. It's symbolizing God's word going forth from Zion, where the apostles were, in all the languages of mankind. And so every... Revival since then has been after that pattern, right? Not, not in the sense that the exact same sequence of events happens where, you know, you, it has to happen that you speak in tongues and, and a mighty wind and tongues of fire falling on you, and, right? It doesn't always look like that. In fact, I don't think it ever looks exactly like that. 
but every revival is an empowerment related somehow to the Great Commission. And in a sense, every individual outpouring of the Spirit, every, every person who receives the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Messiah, is participating in that mission as well. Every empowerment of the Spirit is somehow related to this task of taking God's Word to all nations and making disciples of all nations. Uh, since, since Acts 2, we're, we're living in, in the shadow of that great outpouring. So there's lots of examples throughout history of this sort of thing happening, right? The Great Awakening is a huge one. Uh, we don't, I'm not going to go into all the history of it, but I want to uh, read a couple excerpts of descriptions of some of the things that took place during these revivals. So the Great Awakening, uh, the, you know, the, uh, some of the most influential figures were uh, George Whitfield and Charles Wesley and John Wesley. So here's a description of how uh, this revival is launched. Uh, this is before the start of the Great Awakening proper, but uh, John and Charles Wesley and their friend George Whitfield were all students at Oxford, and they started this club called the Holy Club, <laughs> which uh, was an interesting name for a club. You don't see those campus clubs with that name very often anymore. Um, so on, on New Year's Day, 1739, John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, and four other members of the Holy Club, plus about 60 other like-minded people, held a love feast in London at Fetters Lane, um, and then there's a quote at about three in the morning, as we were continuing instant insist, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground, overcome by the power of God. As soon as we recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of His Majesty, we broke out with one voice: "We praise Thee, O God! We acknowledge Thee to be the Lord." And this was one of the things that sparked what later became the Great Awakening. These, these individuals became very influential uh, preachers. Uh, George Whitfield especially was renowned for being uh, an outdoor orator and evangelist. And people would flock in thousands to come and listen to him preach. The Second Great Awakening, which took place in the 1800s, um, it was less, less cohesive than the, the First Great Awakening, uh, but there were a number of influential people in that. And actually, uh, some, some uh, historians on revival identify I think up to five different great, great awakenings. Um, so it just depends on how you dice up history. But uh, but one of the key figures, of course, is Charles Finney that we read about, right? Uh, in, I want to read this description of uh, a meeting that Finney had. So, talks about this uh, renewal in the schoolhouses. Antwerp was 13 miles from Evan Mills and had no church building. When Finney walked through the village one Saturday and heard the profanity, he spent much of the day in prayer. He had such a tremendous prayer burden that he spent Sunday morning praying in the woods until the time for the meeting in the schoolhouse. When he got there, he found it packed with people. As Finney began to speak on John 3.16, he wept copiously. He told them that in Antwerp he felt he were on the verge of hell. The people were not offended. Several hours later, Finney had a second meeting, and from then on he preached almost daily in the schoolhouse. A great portion of the 2,250 citizens of Antwerp were converted. Finney was invited to a nearby village, and in the first service there, were, there the schoolhouse was full. There had never been a religious service in that village. Finney preached directly to the people. After about 15 minutes, 
the quote, the congregation began to fall from their seats and they fell in every direction and cried for mercy. If I had had a sword in each hand, I could not have cut them off their seats as fast as they fell. Indeed, nearly the whole congregation were either on their knees or prostrate. And I, I should think in less than two minutes from this first shock that fell upon them, everyone prayed for himself who was able to speak at all. I, of course, was obliged to stop preaching for they no longer paid any attention. Finney told them, you are not in hell yet. Now let me direct you to Christ. <laughs> so everyone was calling out to God and none could hear him. So Finney began to point people one by one to Christ until they had the witness of the spirit to their salvation. That meeting went on all night and into the afternoon of the next day. Back in Antwerp, God worked an almost identical service in, in an almost identical service to the one just described and revival spread to almost every part of the town. So there's tons and tons of stories about Finney that are like that. I mean, it's, in, you know, it's kind of incredible. Um, there, there are different opinions out there about Finney. Not everyone today is a fan of him. Uh, there are some people that, um, yeah, a lot of people today accuse him of believing in Pelagianism, which is the belief that you can save yourself through your own works. Uh, I'm not 100% sure. I, I mean, I haven't researched it enough to be able to say definitively whether or not Finney was Pelagian. But what I do know is Finney strongly emphasized repentance. He would talk about, uh, and actually he has these lectures on revival in which he counsels, uh, he, the, the one article, he talks about breaking up your fallow ground. Uh, that's a verse from Hosea and, and uh, there's a couple places in the prophets. It uses this imagery of breaking up your fallow ground uh, and, and sowing seeds of repentance. Right, And so Finney uh, suggests one way to go about this is to list all the sins you've ever committed. Like start writing it out on a piece of paper. Take all the time you need and, and start doing this. And once you're done and you've prayed about it and you feel like you've written down everything you possibly could. And he says, be as thorough as, as uh, a lawyer or uh, uh, CRA revision or person, I don't know, <laughs> um, an auditor. <laughs> and, and so once, once you're finally done and you, you're, you finally feel like you've got all these things written down, simply resolve never to do them again. <laughs> and pray for God to help you in that. I mean, and like this is like really basic black and white repentance, right? And so... Again, I, I don't know all the details about Finney's theology. I'm not trying to endorse him in every way. But I think that one of the reasons why God was working powerfully through him was because he tapped into the power of repentance. He realized that there, how necessary it is for us to give up our sin, to reject our sin. And that grace is not meant to whitewash that away and make that less of an obligation for us as believers. So, obviously, yeah, there has to be a balance. We have to understand God's grace, his love towards us, and realize that he, he calls us, even in our sinful state, to come to him. And it is there that we can repent and give up our sin and, and dedicate our lives completely to him. But that turning away from sin is an essential ingredient, and that's something that I think is missing in a lot of preaching that you hear today. Let's talk a little bit about the Welsh revival. This took place, well, there were a couple different revivals in Wales, but uh, Evan Roberts was known for uh, one that occurred at the beginning of the 1900s. I'm just going to read a bit of a description here. 
The first week of revival under Evan Roberts culminated in a powerful Sunday evening service. Here is Roberts' description of the events. By midnight, the whole congregation was overwhelmed with tears. Then the, other, then the people came down from the gallery and sat close to one another. Now, said I, we must believe that the Spirit will come. Not think, he, not think he will come, not hope he will come, but firmly believe that he will come. Then I read the promises of God and pointed out how definite they were. Remember, I am doing all under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and praise be to him. After this, the Spirit said that everyone was to pray. Pray now, not confess, not sing, not give experience, but pray and believe and wait. And this is the prayer. Send the Spirit now for, Yeshu for Jesus Christ's sake. The people were sitting and only closed their eyes. The prayers began with me. Then it went from seat to seat, boys and girls, young men and maidens, some asking in silence, some aloud, some coldly, some with warmth, some formally, some in tears, some with difficulty, some adding to it, boys and girls, strong voices, then tender voices. Oh, wonderful, I never thought of such an effect. I felt the place beginning to be filled, and before the prayer had gone halfway through the chapel, I could hear some brother weeping, sobbing, and saying, Oh, dear, dear, well, well, oh, dear, dear. We on went the prayer, the feeling becoming more intense, the place being filled more and more with the Spirit's presence. The 60 or more remaining at this time now gathered around the revivalist, many almost overcome with awe. Some called out, no more, Lord Jesus, or I die. Others cried for mercy, weeping, singing, praising, and lying prostrate on the floor in agony of the conviction for their sin. Eventually, they closed the meeting and Roberts got to bed at 3.15 a.m. By now, simultaneous revival had also come to uh, other, this other city with praying, weeping, singing, such as the people had never known before. There's uh, descriptions of how places where uh, there is revival taking place, that boats coming in to the harbor, the people on the ship would start to break down before they even reached the, the mainland, and they had no idea why. And uh, there is just, you know, places where there would be this awesome sense of God's presence. And people would feel convicted for their sin. And people would uh, be weeping and crying and, and uh, not knowing what to do. And then God's Spirit would, uh, they, they would confess their sin to God and they would, accept uh, Yeshua and be filled with this overwhelming joy and peace and you know it like that's not something you can conjure up right that's not something that any one person can do it's not or even a group of people can do right in uh, that decade from 1901 to 1910 uh, revival historian J. Edwin Orr describes that as the biggest, most widespread revival in history. It's actually not that well known because uh, it's, it was scattered in different places around the world, but there was the Welsh revival, and there were uh, revivals that were sparked in South Africa, in India, in Japan, in Indonesia, in Australia, in a whole bunch of different countries at the same time. And what's interesting is that, you know, a lot of people today who talk about revival, they look to Azusa Street as the quintessential of revival, which did happen to take place during that decade as well. But they tend to ignore the much, much bigger revival, which didn't happen to involve speaking in tongues the way Azusa Street did, that was taking place around the world at that same time. And that lasted for a decade. Another revival I wanted to throw on the list is the Canadian revival of the 1970s. Uh, of course, I wasn't alive at that time, so I, there was uh, Ebenezer Baptist in Saskatoon and Hillsdale Alliance in Regina that were major centers of this revival. But yeah, it spread all across Western Canada. And 
from the stories I hear and the things I read about that time is that in those days, it was relatively easy to lead someone to the Lord. It's like, you know, there were, there were so many people becoming believers during that season, and, and, and these were lasting conversions, right? These, are, these people that became believers during that time, they stayed committed believers. It wasn't just a fad that went through. You know, sometimes today you feel like it's really hard. You know, it's, it's not easy to have positive spiritual conversations with people that you meet. And I know that's not an excuse. It's not an excuse for us to sit back and not do anything. But it does make you, does make you realize that, and I don't understand it, but it seems like God works in certain seasons with a special, unique power. One thing I want to bring up in relation to this is what do we do with instances of revival in which we don't necessarily agree with what's being promoted? The theology, for example, or whatever it may be. Now, for some charismatic believers, this is a big issue. Uh, uh, Pentecostals who believe that speaking in tongues is the sign of the filling of the Holy Spirit a lot of them try to discount the Canadian revival because it wasn't a tongue-speaking phenomenon, right? Uh, according to uh, William McLeod from Ebenezer Baptist in Saskatoon, there were some people who spoke in tongues during the Canadian revival, but all of those were people who spoke in tongues before the revival. Uh, new people who came into the revival or new believers uh, did not speak in tongues as a result of this revival. And so he had a lot of people, a lot of Pentecostal believers telling him that's not true revival. They discount it because it doesn't fit their definition of, or their box for what the working of the Holy Spirit is supposed to look like, right? You know, as Messianics, maybe it's tempting for us to do the same thing, right? Like if Whitfield and the Wesleys, if they were really filled with God's spirit and this was a real revival, how come they weren't all keeping Torah? I don't know, right? You could look at, there, there were revivals that took place in the Middle Ages, and it was among people who were part of the Catholic Church because that was the only church at the time, right? Uh, a lot of them ended up getting executed, but <laughs> that's another story. But, you know, they didn't come out with a protestant theology what do we do with that right uh what do we do with you know groups where say we do have a different uh definition of speaking in tongues than than certain groups and there's a revival like azusa street where there is this type of speaking in tongues what do we do with that do we discount it say no that's not a real revival I don't have a simple answer to all this, um, but I do want to say that we can't put God in a box. I also want to say that God working among a certain group of people should not be seen as a blanket endorsement of everything that group of people says and believes. I think that should be obvious, but sometimes we... We're tempted to think that, oh, revival showed up in this group, therefore that group was doing it right. And I think that's a false conclusion to come to. I'm convinced that pretty much all the time, God works in spite of us. <laughs> God doesn't work with us or through us because we're doing it right. He works for his own purposes and for his glory. And we don't deserve any credit for it. So God can work whenever and wherever he wants to, right? Um, God showing up is not d divine approval for the beliefs and practices of the place that or the group in which he shows up, right? So if God wants to show up at Toronto Airport Church, if God wants to work in people and in individuals at Toronto Airport Church or whatever it may be, he can do that. 
that doesn't endorse everything that goes on there, right? And there are groups that do things like that. Uh, you know, Toronto Airport, as an example, <laughs> uh, where there are legitimate examples of changed lives, right? And to God be the glory for that. And that's not that shouldn't surprise us, because God can work in less than ideal circumstances. And the proof of that is that he works among humans. <laughs> I think all of us are less than ideal circumstances. And so at the same time, I, I, I would say that there was genuine stuff going on at Azusa Street. Uh, I think it is that, that we should consider it a legitimate revival from God's perspective even though I disagree with the theological premise and some of the actions that resulted from it, right? Um, I, I don't believe Azusa Street was what Pentecostals sometimes make it out to be as uh, the final end-time restoration of biblical faith and practice or the restoration of the spirit that had been suppressed or absent for all these years. Uh, it was one revival in the midst of a worldwide revival activity that was going on at that time. Another thing that confronts us when we talk about revival is what do we do with some of this weird stuff that happens, right? Like Wesley Duell talked about a bit of it, like people trembling or weeping, you know, uncontrollably. And, and it, for some people, those kinds of things make them uncomfortable, right? And... Maybe that's their hang-up that they need to get over. But it is interesting. We'll come back to this verse next time. But you look at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It describes what I think is, I, I believe this is describing a revival that is yet to come. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. I think there's far more biblical precedent for weeping in a revival than there is for laughing hysterically in a revival. <laughs> And, you know, the, and, and the passage goes on to describe the weeping in detail, right? Uh, we'll look at that next time, but um, there's, a lot, there's a big focus on that as part of, part of this move of the Spirit. Obviously, tears alone are not a sign of the Holy Spirit or a sign of revival, but I think that there is good biblical precedent that when we encounter the living God, we realize our own sinfulness. We realize how little and insignificant we are before him. And that's the first step to coming clean and to confessing our sins to him. And it's only when we're willing to humble ourselves before him and allow him to uh, and accept his forgiveness that then, then we see the depth of his grace and his love for us. I think that what Isaiah experienced is paradigmatic of that. In Isaiah chapter 6, this well-known passage, Isaiah has this vision in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, and what's Isaiah's response to all this? Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We encounter God 
the response should be that we recognize our own sinfulness in the, and, and how incongruous that is with God's holiness. But that's not the end of the story. If it ends there, then there's a problem, but it doesn't. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So there's, there's not just this recognition of sinfulness, but there's also this tangible sense and demonstration of God's cleansing and forgiveness of us of his grace and his love towards us in removing our sins. And it, but it doesn't just end there either. It goes on. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. It doesn't just end with a good feeling of having your sins forgiven. The next step, the response to all that, the response to realizing your sin and receiving this amazing forgiveness is to say, here I am, send me. To put ourselves at God's disposal. And that's why I believe that true works of the Holy Spirit are for a purpose. God empowers us with his spirit to do something, right? He has a mission for us. A commission for us, right? God doesn't send his spirit just so we can have a good time. He doesn't pour out his spirit on his people so they can go home and watch TV. He gives us his spirit to go out and do something. And I believe that it, every revival in some sense is connected with that mission to go out and make disciples of all nations. And the more we're distant from that mission, the less we have any real need for the Holy Spirit to be empowering us. So, um, I want to just end on that note that revivals like these that happen, I think they involve those same three steps that we see in Isaiah chapter 6. We see this deep conviction of sin. We see this incredible sense of forgiveness and atonement. And then we see this commissioning to go out and do God's mission. Thanks for listening to this podcast. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.